0: Welcome back to The Profitable Python. I'm your host, Ben McNeil, and on this episode, you will meet Mark Ryan. Mark manages a team of data scientists at Intact Insurance in Toronto. He has a professional background in relational databases and for the last several years has been working on applications of deep learning to structured tabular data. Mark, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much, Ben. Looking forward to it. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. Now, I, I wanted to, in the, in the pre-interview, you had mentioned that something happened when you got your first working Karis model. And I was wondering, what was that that happened to your life when that first model was born?
1: Well, you know, part of it was, it's a little, some of it's a little bit like, you know, how it feels better when you stop hitting the head with a hammer. I had been like banging at it, just trying to, trying to get things working. And it was, it was tough. It was not, it was not easy. Maybe I made some mistakes, but to actually get it to the point where it was working and I could see the results having spent some time looking at the theory and to get it working, it was just, it was magic. It really was a, it was, it was a real epiphany to see, you know what, this is accessible. This is something you don't need to have a PhD in artificial intelligence to be able to get to the point where you can actually do something with this, with this technology. Uh, mm. And that, that was really exciting. It was, that was a a, a, a real level of moment to have that happen.
0: Yeah. That I couldn't agree more. Karis says uh, that, that layer of abstraction is amazing so that i was it really
1: is yeah it just makes things it makes it accessible makes this this amazing technology accessible to a broader range of people to non-specialists uh yeah and, it, and it's getting better even the time that i've been using it it's just getting better and better and having terrace integrated as the top layer for tensorflow 2 fantastic move it's really simplifies things uh they just done a great job i just went through the process of moving a uh, model to um, flow one tattoo, and I was going to be thinking this is going to be a brutal. It actually was pretty smooth. So you know, kudos to the guys who did it. And uh, yeah, it's uh, Terrace is, is a really really nice piece of technology, no doubt about it.
0: Yes, awesome. And uh, when did you first become interested in deep learning?
1: Well, just to, to go back a bit, I did uh, I did a, a master's at the University of Toronto back in the late '80s in artificial intelligence. At that time, it was I think one of your other guests was talking about making something out of a bunch of a bunch of if statements, and that's mm-hmm. what artificial intelligence was in those days: Lisp or Prolog, and let's just create code to to do an artifice of something in the real world. And it was kind of naive, like if there's, there aren't enough programmers in the world to do that. But anyway, so I, I I enjoyed my time there, but I left a bit disillusioned, thinking this not only is this not going to work, it is it's never going to work because it's just it's just the, the wrong approach. And then uh, I guess in the, in the uh, sort of 2009, 2010, I started to see some things that were working. Um, and I think that the thing that really struck me was uh, uh, when Google started to use deep learning for their, their machine translation. So they, they built up this huge corpus of uh, rules-based things for translation and they moved to deep learning. And that, I thought, wow, that is amazing. They would, they, you know, $10 million of investment and they said, we're going we're to use deep learning. That really impressed me. And then you see things that are, that are working, like things, that things, that uh, people had struggled with for decades and they're working. And, uh, I guess I started to get my first piece of it in 2017. It would be about uh, three years ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I've been hooked ever since.
0: Amazing. Yeah. Uh, what would you consider your first success with chatbots?
1: Okay. So, uh, I've, I've been working on a, uh, a uh, project that's sort of looking at a combination of uh, relational database with, uh, with chatbots. And chatbots have a, an aspect of uh, the deep learning, at least in the framework I was using, which is Raza. So, Rasa is an open source chatbot framework which has uh, a great NLP layer. So, using deep learning to do the, the natural language interaction. And it takes care of a, lot of, that, of a lot of that stuff for you. So, it does a great job of packaging that. Um, and uh, but Raza is not that easy to get started with. So some of the commercial things like uh, AWS's Lex, new offering from Google or from IBM,
2: mm-hmm. pretty
1: easy to get started with. But Rasa is a bit of a bit of a bear to get going in the first place. Uh, but getting, I think the thing that uh, kind of gave me that same kind of epiphany is getting the first interaction uh, through Facebook Messenger as, as an interface. And so you see something because okay, and kind of see how this is going to work, and then you get the, the back and forth. Uh, as you kind of built up, built up the rules and built up the the interaction, I reached a point where there were some things that were working that I hadn't explicitly coded, and that was just magic. You see? Because yeah. for thirty years, you know what it's like. You've got every you know it's 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 hard, it's hard. And then you have something that it, it just it it works. It 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 uh, makes an inference that you hadn't explicitly said to, to, uh, uh, to work, you think, wow, this is, this is, it, it's great. It, you know, it's a lot of work to get to that point. But then you see the, you see the promise, you see, you know what, if this can you keep getting that kind of return on investment,
2: mm-hmm. it's a really be powerful.
0: Is there, is there any kind of particular applications in uh, commerce that really excite you? I saw their on their website, it was like, or somebody was like ordering a pizza. Um, which maybe that's the answer to to the question, or is there other things that kind of really uh, inspire you about that, that technology? Well, I think
1: the, the there's a lot of potential for chatbots. Right now, you have the, the, the whole the whole web with uh, you've got you know some websites are easier to navigate, some are harder to navigate, and I think there's a lot of potential for chatbots to simplify that that experience or provide another way to have that experience, so you can have a natural language interaction and get the answer that you want. Mm. So that, that to me was a bit of a vague answer, but I think there's a lot of potential there to provide for just existing uh, web interfaces, a simpler way for people, an alternate simpler way for people to get what they what they need to get out of a particular website.
0: Yeah, do, are they, this is just something I, I just thought of, but are do they also work with people that have accessibility needs or is there, is that it, do, do they not really do that right now
1: um so there's the, the accessibility is built is sort of built into the interface but it's not always implemented
0: so that's okay. a, that's a really
1: good question because it, it's the same sort of thing like the uh, uh html standard will allow for accessibility so for example we have a, a um text description of every image for somebody who has a who, who, site isn't isn't complete mm-hmm. but the implementation is kind of up to the developer to make sure that they're they're taking advantage of that accessibility part Mm -hmm. of it uh certainly uh chat but chatbot frameworks would have both a a text and a voice interaction so you have that kind of flexibility you have to take advantage of it it's a good question in terms of accessibility i i haven't seen examples that have been put forward in that way to say, look, this is a new way to get access to a, an application that maybe is uh, presents an accessibility challenge yeah. for the technology. for chatbots.
0: Hmm. Well, I know uh, there, the, there's another book on your radar. Maybe there'll be a chapter on that or something.
1: Yeah. That's yeah. I, yeah. I'd <laughs> like to, that's uh, something I'd, uh, I'm, I'm currently writing a book on deep learning with structured data, but uh, if I get the opportunity, I'd love to, I'd love to write a book about Raza. It's great technology, but like I said, it takes some time to get in the harness and uh, I had a lot of fun playing with it and I'd like to, I'd love to turn that into something that other people could benefit from.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Where, where did you get the idea for your new book, Deep Learning with Structured Data?
1: So I've, uh, it's, I've come from a background of a relational database. So I've worked at IBM for many years in the DB2 area. So that's their uh, bread and butter relational database. And uh, when I started to learn about deep learning, all of the examples were, were about images or uh, in some cases unstructured text, but it wasn't structured data. And I thought, you know what, this is, this is kind of interesting, but I can't use it to solve problems in my day-to-day job. Mm-hmm. Everything I deal with is in tables. So I started looking around and uh, there were just some kind of throwaway comments I thought. So I was saying, well, you shouldn't use deep learning with structured data. Uh, well, why not? And it just it's, it's, it's meant for other, for other stuff. And then I did uh, the uh, Jeremy Howard's the Fast AI course, and he had a section there about using uh, deep learning with structured data. And that really got my appetite. I thought, oh, this is, this is really interesting. So I started looking at, at some uh, Kaggle competitions where people had used deep learning to, uh, uh, to win, in some cases, competitions. So I started to start to kind of just go through that, and I thought there's, there are a lot of people looking at deep learning for those kind of classic applications for image, audio, text, and structured data just seemed to be a bit of a, it wasn't getting a lot of attention, and that's mm-hmm. where I could try to use practically for my job, and something that had that background, and I thought, you know what, this is an interesting area to, to look into. At least get an answer to that question, like if, it's, if deep learning isn't the answer, then why not? Why is it not suitable for structured data?
0: Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Some, some scientific method there. Maybe just have a hypothesis and see what the results, what the results. A bit of that
1: some bloody mindedness as well. Somebody <laughs> said, yeah, I don't use it. So why? Like, what
2: could <laughs> I'll,
0: I'll show you. Yeah. Mind. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, what do you think it is that people love most about your new book?
1: Well, some of the, 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 feedback that I've had, so it's in, it, it's uh, becoming out in full release this summer. It's on early release on the Manning website now. And some of the feedback I've had, I, I think uh, what I've really tried to do is make it a complete end to end picture. So okay. that's the other thing that kind of, for us, as I was learning about deep learning, you get a lot of stuff. Okay, okay here's the model and you work on the model. And then, well, how do you deploy it? You know, the deployments for these other folks, mm-hmm. if, well, no, seriously, how do you, how do you actually make this useful to another application or to a human being? Yeah. 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 No, don't worry about that. That's that's for, that's for, that's for the other folks, but
2: that's you know, out of, that's out of knowledge. scope.
1: It's out of scope. Exactly. And, I hate that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I thought, you know what, darn it, I'm going to have a deployment section in my book and I'm going to go. The other thing that I saw that was missing in a lot of the, particularly for deep learning is you'd have a data set that was so carefully curated oh, and yeah. so beautifully, you know, cleaned up and it was kind of maybe meant for a course or for a competition. So it's not, it's not like real data. Yeah. So I really, I really wanted to have a data set that was a mess. And mm-hmm. I, I, I kind <laughs> of I met I that goal it. and spent a lot of time cleaning it up. But that was – so those, those two goals. I wanted to have – start with a real-world data set, open, yeah. open data set, but real-world data set, and end up with a deployed model mm. and have deep learning and structured data. So I think what, I, what the feedback I've seen so far, people do appreciate that end-to-end nature and also having – the, the, the messy real world data set as well.
0: Yeah, that's, a, that's amazing because everybody that I've talked to that has real world experience with this and, uh, and my, myself included, I work with oil and gas data, So, but it's never, it's like you spend most of your time cleaning it up and getting everything right. Yeah. And then, yeah, so that's, a, that's amazing to hear you share that. Um, that sounds like a, a real big value add there.
1: I, I hope so. And I, and the data that you have to work with must be, you, 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 it probably, I imagine it was collected for one purpose and you need to use it to solve another problem. So there's yeah. always that kind of impedance, impedance mismatch. And I'm sure that you spend a decent amount of your time getting the piping to work between the, the source and the, and the target
2: yeah.
0: with data
1: that wasn't, that was, it wasn't it was initially collected for whatever you're, you're trying to uh, use it for
0: your, your intuition is correct. You have the SCADA kind of like data from the radios, uh, but you've got customers in engineering you've got customers in accounting. The boss wants his metrics. I mean, it's uh, it's crazy how hard it can be to get a data set that services all your different customers. So yeah, I guess you don't need to be a petroleum engineer to, to have that tui- intuition, but uh, I could, it's,
1: there seems to be a lot of, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of that. There's
2: a lot of that. Yeah.
0: Hmm, crazy. Uh, what attributes, cause I know you you manage a team. Uh, I was curious, what attributes do you look for in the people that you bring on your team?
1: So I guess the first is they, they have to have the technical chops. So they have to, and right now they have to be, you know, competent Python programmers, just as a starting point. They have to have a, a good sense of curiosity and they have to be able to say, you know what, they're going to have to learn new things. So the people who come onto my team. I uh, would not tend to have a background in the insurance industry if they're data scientists. So My team does include actuarial people, so people who've come up academically through the insurance side of things. Mm-hmm. But the data scientists don't have that insurance background. So they have to have some curiosity about the business. They have to have curiosity about technology, be willing to learn. And frankly, what, one of the things I've learned in my career is you can't be too attached. No, as much as, for example, I, you know, I love deep learning right now the time may come in five or six years where there's something else will come along and supersede it. I have to have an open mind about that. So when the time comes, I don't kind of white knuckle it and say, this is the way everything has to be. I look, I look for that from the people the people that I bring onto the team. Hmm. Um, and open is not to be up a picky eater as well. I think sometimes people, particularly data scientists can, can reach a point because there's so much attention because it's such a sexy profession. They can say, well, I do this, but I don't do that. And mm. the team's not that large. And it, frankly, it's people, it's good for people to have a sense of the whole end process. So I like people to have a bit of open-mindedness to say, you, know, you want to spend the time, most of your time on doing things that are the, that you're really using your background, but sometimes you may have to you know, spend some time doing things that aren't exactly what you had expected. If you open mind towards that, you'll learn something and you'll, it, it's just good for the, the overall health of the team as well. To not have mm. picky eaters.
0: Yeah, that's, that sounds like you have uh, probably some deep collaboration going on, on your deep learning uh, team as well
1: Yes. <laughs> because yes. of that. So that's right. That's mm-hmm. right. Although my, my team is, uh, there's some sort of taste of deep learning the, the, the models we're using right now, we're not using deep learning, but at, in, at, at intact, but uh, it is, it is definitely collaboration between the actuarial and the deep, the uh, data science side. People, you know, they they both learn. People who are come from data science have to learn more about insurance. The actuaries become better data scientists. And that's great to see. And I have to say, they are a great team. Everybody says that, every manager says that, but I really mean it. Yeah. I'm very, very fortunate to have the team working with me that I have.
0: Hmm, Amazing. I do want to pry a little bit on your first remark to that answer, which was they have to have the technical chops. How does somebody prove that they have the technical chops? Do they have an amazing GitHub? Uh, do they, are they referred to someone? Do you make them do live coding? Like how, how could somebody prove that to you? So
1: there, there's a basic assessment test, which we sort of okay. sets the, the table stakes. So that, that's a part of it, but I would look for their portfolio as well. Okay. What do they, what do they have in there? And depending on the job they do, they may not have a great GitHub. They may have spent three or four years working in an area, but it's, proprietary stuff so they can't necessarily share it yeah uh now one of the things i'm trying to encourage in the team is to share more is to do things to like publish on medium to get involved in the wider community but mm. not everybody has that in terms of their their, their background um i don't talk to them find out how they how they get along and the other thing i'll do is i'll ask somebody on the team to speak with them as well so we get get two opinions and you know but by, by, i by no means know everything that's going on so i'll pick somebody with the a deeper technical chops than me in an area and say, um, um, have at it with this guy and this lady or, you know, tell me what you think. Yeah. And then if they, if they give a thumbs up, they, they're owning some of the decision and they feel like they've been part of that decision on having somebody foisted on them that they didn't get a chance to give an opinion on it. And yeah. that seems to have worked out
0: reasonably hmm. well. That's, that's that ninja leadership tactics, uh, delegating, uh, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, why should someone stay technical regardless of where they are on an org chart?
1: I think the danger of getting into a situation where you're spending all of your time on organizational things or, or general things is there are a couple of problems there. One is your ability to assess the, how the team is doing is diminished because they'll be, they'll be using buzzwords you don't have any familiarity with. Or they'll be uh, making analogies to technology that you might understand, and it may not be completely there. Sometimes they might be BSing you. Sometimes they just they just don't know, and
2: mm-hmm. you won't have
1: a way to tell. So having some some sense of the of, the, of technology just helps you to be a, a, I, I believe to be a better a better leader and make better better judgments. The other thing is I'd say in terms of fun, everybody should be doing a job that they enjoy. No, no job's perfect, but you know you want to enjoy it. And I'm sure that the job that you do there's some aspects of it. It was so great, but there are probably, there are probably elements of it that you really enjoy. You see, you know, I get satisfaction out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're doing, if you come from a technical background you're doing a job where it's all PowerPoint and it's all communication, you can you kind of you lose some of the joy through that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it, that's important. And then I think, you know, there's no, there are no guarantees in life either. And companies, have their periods of growth and periods of attraction economies we've seen economies change. And if you don't make an effort to stay current, you could be in a situation where you, your technical skills are 10 years old. And when the time comes to say, you know what, I, uh, I've been, I don't know how to put this, uh, it's it's time to become a carpenter again, but I haven't picked up a saw for 10 years. Mm -hmm. It can be tough. So I think all those three other things sort of in terms of your job, being able to do your job as leader more effectively and being a bit more resilient and flexible for the unexpected, yeah. those all together save it. You know, it's important to stay technical.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for sharing. Uh, I do have some questions on chat box, uh, chatbots. Sure. Uh, how powerful are the NLP models for chatbots out of the box?
1: So the experience that I've had, I've, I've sort of dabbled with a couple of frameworks, but Raz is the one that I've really spent some time with and i've been quite impressed so it uh, does a pretty good with a relatively small training set does a pretty good job of determining if a particular string is the name of an individual for example or uh uh, the name of an object if a number is indicative of a year or it's an ordinal number that kind of thing Mm -hmm. so that's sort of that's the basic stuff it does it does a really good job so i'd say at a sentence by sentence level what you get out of the box from, from Raza is really good. And with, with not a whole lot of training material, you get, you get pretty impressive results pretty quickly.
2: Okay.
1: The challenge comes when you try to put together sentences, you get a story and get a narrative going back and forth, and then it's, it gets quite a bit harder. And if okay. you have something that's quite a, quite a complex interaction where lots of things can happen, you can get back to that, I was describing in the, the late 80s situation where you get a bunch of essentially if statements try and control everything that's happening. So, uh, yeah, so I guess that that's sort of the, the net of it at a sentence level, what I've seen in Raza, extremely powerful, at a multi-sentence, um, uh, kind of conversation level. It's possible to do it well, but it's more challenging. It requires, requires more thought and more skill to get good results.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, this just, this might be my ignorance speaking here on how these all these, uh, chat box, technology works but I'm just curious like it starts out pretty good but ultimately you want it really good and so are you training these things on real like customers for example or is there some sort of uh, like how how do you train it for the real world and kind of release it into the wild with confidence Um, or or you just have to deal with some risk I guess at the beginning yes
1: there's a certain certain amount of risk and, and part of the risk is if you have something that works fairly well in a small set people who don't have, maybe they're not technical, or they don't really, they don't, they, they may overestimate what it's capable of doing. So that I've definitely seen as a risk that you have stakeholders within the organization. You need to set their expectations very clearly. Say, For this kind of question, it'll do a great job, but that's what it does. It does, it's not, it's not a, uh, a, the, um, uh, it's not uh, artificial general intelligence. Because mm-hmm. people will see things, they'll be quite impressed. They say, "Well, this is this is answering real questions. It's it's taking various English language queries that have different structures and realizing there's the same intent for all of these things." Yeah. So you have to set that expectation internally, and then for real customers, it becomes more it becomes more of a challenge because there you've got, you got know, you can't control it as much.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so there, I think what you need to do is really sort of try and set the. Uh, set some boundaries in terms of the expectations so people won't be disappointed and if they mm-hmm. if there is a problem if they do get stuck they can quickly get to either get to a human being or get to a more uh, conventional interface so they don't feel you know what this is this is another chatbot that's disappointed me
2: mm-hmm.
1: and if you look at the the industry it's it's interesting right now there's this kind of a uh, a second moment for chatbots there's a, there's a fair bit of buzz about them but there's also d- disappointment because people have had the experience either as developers or as consumers to say, "This really wasn't very. It wasn't very good." Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So it's there's there's a there's a a challenge there to make sure that the magic is people understand that what the 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 magic isn't. I'm going to put it. It's not. that It's real magic, but you know the 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 card disappearing is not the card disappearing. There's a there there's something rational going on there.
0: Yeah. Uh, so this might be kind of a tricky question, but I'm wondering if you have like one big piece of advice when it comes to setting people's expectations. This is a little off the cuff, but in the projects that I've worked with, I think I struggle with that the most. And so, yes, I selfishly am asking, but I think it can help other people. Like any project you get on, you run into this where if you fail to set the expectations, it, uh, things can go wrong real quick.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that you're, that's so true that and that's been the, that's been the way for software forever. Yeah. Uh, but especially now, now that there are things that there're new there's there are new capabilities, people may think that they they can do more than they can. Yeah. Something that I found useful is to involve the internal users in creating the use case.
2: Mm. So
1: even owning it. So the, the last project I went through with with a chatbot there was literally a script to say okay, this is what the chatbot chat needs to get through these steps 1 to 11 and here's, here's what the behavior is going to be, and have the, the product owner own that script. So they've created it, they've said, this is what I want to have happen, and then you can ask them questions. If there's ambiguity, they're the one who's, who's, answer, who's, who's coming up, who's clarifying that ambiguity, as opposed mm-hmm. to me as the developer saying, I'm gonna make an assumption, and that assumption may be the simplest thing to do, or the thing that doesn't completely stress the technology, or the thing that is going to be more reliable, as opposed to saying to the the uh, business owner, what you know, what do you want? How do you think this should behave?
2: Mm-hmm. And I
1: found that helped. But even then, there was still that that sense of, well, this is this should be able to answer any question or interpret any 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 uh, English language query. Say, no, what it, it it'll interpret this class of queries, but not not anything. Mm-hmm. So I guess having the script helped, but it didn't completely. Eliminate the problem that you described, where there's that mismatch between what you've spent so much time implementing and what the ex- expectations are. Yeah. And I'm sure you've had this experience because you, you, know, you give your heart and soul to create this code. And then the, the other, other side, they're disappointed. You think, how can you be disappointed? I, I've, I've blown my brains out to create this. Yeah. But from their perspective, they were, their expectations were somewhere a little, bit, a little bit different. And who knows how they got those expectations, but they, that's what they've got.
0: Yeah. But it sounds like one way that you can kind of mitigate or high probability of mitigating a scenario like that is uh, just including your stakeholders and maybe even delegating some of the um, accountability for, for uh, the deliverable, like giving them some, some piece of ownership is kind of what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. And I think that helps because then they feel, they feel accountability and they feel, of we'll some proprietorship, it's not like yeah. well, there's somebody coding this thing. It's that we're as a team, we're creating this together, and we we're, we own it together. Yeah. And it, that can that can uh, de-escalate some of the the conflict as well.
0: Mm, yeah, that there's there's just so many nuggets in there, like the camaraderie that you're talking about, like because I I've even experienced scenarios where maybe folks aren't entirely on board with the solution you're providing because it might seem like it's taking jobs or something like that. So really, um, yeah, there's just so much good about the recommendation that you made. So uh, thank you. You're welcome.
1: And, and you bring up a good point. Sometimes people's motivations, you, they have good motivations, but they're not immediately evident. And that your, your point about people being concerned about jobs is mm. a, it's really important. It really, it really, really matters. Yeah. But it can be kind of tucked away a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah what uh what differentiates or i guess uh the the attributes that differentiate a chatbot from an industrial strength chatbot what what is that
1: so I, I think if you look at some of the some of the implementations that are available they're basically uh the question they'll take you through a sort of question and answer so you're you're filling in you say here's a, a set of things that can happen and there are maybe three or four potential outcomes it's, it's sort of a tree structure that you're you're flowing through
2: mm-hmm. so
1: at each point in the tree there's a response that maybe or there maybe there's it's randomized somewhat or the person's name is included in it there's some variables included in it, but there's no it it really is it could have been implemented in 30 years ago with if statements mm-hmm. and there's a there's a place for that uh so that that i'd say is something that does have a have a role but probably will disappoint most users, whereas something that's industrial strength would have more flexibility. It would be able to take a really wide range of natural language input. It would make intelligent decisions about uh, misspelling, for example. And that's something I've learned the hard way, going through doing, uh, doing a demo and uh, somebody says, well, uh, this, this particular demo involves the name of the actor, Mark Hamill. Now his last name's hard to spell. So I was doing the demo and I misspelled his name a chatbot didn't work hmm. because it didn't have, it didn't have adequate uh, dealing with, miss, with misspelling. Okay. So that, kind of, that, that ability to be able to say, not, not the user you hope you have, but a real user you're actually going to have the interaction that they're going to have, the chatbot will work with it properly. And then if it does fail, fail in a graceful way. Hmm. So provide a message that is, uh, that's honest, but doesn't make them feel like they, they've broken something. Yeah. And gives them the path to getting back on track again.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I just, I know using this thing right here, auto text will uh, goof up from time to time. I'm like, I didn't, that's not what I did. Yeah. So even, even that can get you in trouble. I see what you're saying. And
1: and names are hard because they're so there's, hmm. there's such a variance of names and getting, and even somebody like famous, like Mark Hamill, you know, that's not that common a name. So how do you make sure that you're, you're getting, uh, accounting for spelling problems there. And there are some companies with deep pockets that have, that, that do it quite well. Google obviously does a fantastic job with that. Uh, being able to do it on a smaller scale is, is a challenge for sure.
0: Mm, okay. Excellent. Thanks. Uh, what would you say you are most excited about uh, with potential? Well, is we'll just say that you're writing this book on Raza. What are you most excited about uh, writing that, that book?
1: So, uh, so the Rosenbooks Boats one, I, I hope to be able to raise. That's sort of okay. the next thing I have in my in my aspirational my, my list of yes. aspirations. Uh-huh. So, what what excites me about that, I guess it's open source. So, I think that idea of it being open, and lo- and the other chatbot solutions are they're provided by by, by cloud. So, uh, AWS has one, mm-hmm. IBM has one, Google has one, and they all have their strengths and weaknesses. But I think that what we've seen in the last 20 years, particularly, is open source. Just has a, a dynamism, resilience. You get to take you know the brilliance of, of tens of thousands of developers, and 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 uh, really make that work. So I think that's the right way to go. Uh, it has Python in the back end, so you have all the, you have this fantastic natural language interface. You can get to to Object for free, and then at the back end you can do anything you want with Python. And Python is you know it's, anything you want to do you can do. Performance can be a problem sometimes. You've got to worry about the, the maintainability of the code. But it's just an incredibly powerful environment to have that openness. So that really excites me. So I think that combination of a, a, a really good natural language interface, you kind of get off the shelf for free. And having Python in the back end with that, with that flexibility and extensibility, that's really, that's really exciting. Uh, on the, in some is a little bit more concerning. One, is, I mentioned using Facebook Messenger as a, as a front end for a chatbot. And uh, Facebook's a fantastic company. I mean, they've, they've done incredible technology, but they're pretty strict about the Messenger environment. And they mm-hmm. do not want to recreate the, you know, destroying my age, the World Wide Web in, in Facebook. So it, can be, it can do this and this and this. And they'll make decisions to say, it won't do that anymore. And all of a sudden you've got, well, wait a second. You can't, well, yeah, yeah. they own the interface. They can say that they can do what they want.
2: Mm.
1: So that's a bit of a, that's a bit of a risk. Uh, WhatsApp, which is another uh, sort of yeah, front end for, for chatbots. And it's going to, going to become more and more important. It has its challenges as well. So uh, yeah, there, there are challenges there, but I think there's, there's immense opportunity and uh, I think we just, we just kind of scratched the surface in terms of what's out there right now what, and what chatbots can do. I, and the other thing, I think they're neglected a little bit because people who, are, who see themselves as like a really hardcore kind of deep learning types I mean, chatbots are for, you know, they're there for they're for those folks over there. But, you know, there's, there's real challenge there. And it's also something you can, you, can, you can solve genuine practical problems and deliver value using the technology and, and get it out there.
2: Hmm.
1: So there's a a kind of a speed to speed to benefit with chatbots. You don't necessarily get with some of the other applications of of deep learning. Hmm.
0: Amazing. Yeah. That I'm, I'm really loving the color on that. I haven't really worked too much with them. I think I did a little bit of work with Google's version of the chatbot, something with like medical terminology or something like that, but it was pretty, it was pretty cool, but I, I don't think I gave it enough, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, it could basically be a career path. Is, you could just go as deep as you want. I,
1: I believe so. I believe there are people who, you know, if you have an open mind about it, you mm-hmm. can, there's, there's plenty of potential there and people can, can really, can really go. I, I, I question a few you if you don't mind. So you mentioned Google for, if, not to put you on the spot, but looking at the, the cloud providers. Do you have, have a fave? Is there one do you, like, do you have to work with one professionally or do you have a,
0: yeah, and- on that? AWS is the one that is kind of uh, we're, we're just nudged in that direction there. Um, but I, I, haven't really developed like a re, uh, like a religious taste for one of them. I thought Google was pretty intuitive with the stuff that I did work with, but um, I just keep gravitating back towards Amazon, but you're talking to someone who has uh, probably not as much, not as much experience actually as uh, I would like. Um, I, I want to get more into the, into the cloud deployments. I've I've been I, I told you before the uh, before the episode started that I got um ex- my, cutting my teeth with Access and I've been Microsoft Access and so I've been like Great. super focused on this like offline on prem world and it's very clear everything is going to the cloud and so I am uh, trying to itch itch this or uh, scratch scratch the
1: that itch, itch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know your, your your opinion on this is pretty valuable because I think people do get very entrenched in their religious wars about it. Yeah. So uh, it, it, it getting having fresh eyes because AWS has been sitting there and kind of, in some ways being brilliant, in some ways kind of becoming quite stinky.
2: Really. So
1: yeah. having somebody kind of come like, at well, you know what this this should be a, a good platform for developers. It would be interesting. You get you get a chance to take a look at it. What mm-hmm. your what your impressions are because you know''t want, to, I don't want to lead the witness but it it surprised, it surprised me in uh, in the taste i've had of it in it, some in good ways and some not so good ways as well and it's interesting that it's so dominant it's so
0: yeah
1: it's uh, i don't know if it's uh, you know like uh windows in nineteen ninety five is it great it doesn't have to be because that's it's the it's what it's what there is
0: yeah so. yeah they are the eight hundred pound gorilla and i wonder you kind of bring up a good point. Like, is it, is it because they're the 800 pound gorilla that they, they just keep going strong or is there like an actual, is there something better out there? You know?
1: Yeah. I've had some exposure to Azure, to Microsoft's thing. And and I, in my DNA, because I worked for IBM for so long, there was a a very, very strong antipathy towards Microsoft as an organization. Yeah. And and it's silly. Like it's not, it's not rational. So I was like, I don't know, Microsoft. But I have to say they've done a very good job and they've been really hmm. working very hard for their audience maybe kind of a more of a traditional corporate audience yeah and they I think they've done a, a really really good job uh, done they have a very modest deployment in Azure and I thought, you know what this is this is quite nice they've really made it far less painful than uh, the experience with AWS and maybe they're hungrier they have to feel they have to fight harder because they don't, they're not the incumbent. They don't already have 40% of the market. Uh, but they've, they've been impressed. And I've seen them improve. You know, I, I did something, I guess it was uh, about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was okay. Wasn't that great? And then to go back again and see how they've improved. This is this is the right trajectory. Yeah. For sure.
0: Hmm. You know, while you were sharing that, that, that brought up. Uh, so I have worked with Heroku a lot. And I don't know, like on the scale of like, you know, is it, is it uh, you know, Heroku is definitely not Amazon, but with like a few little CLI commands, I've got like a full blown Postgres database and my little Django web app, like you can goof off with cloud technology pretty quick with Heroku. And uh, I don't know, do you have any insight on like that, those platform as a service versus what Microsoft is doing? But I think- I'll be d- honest with you, I have
1: not had exposure to Heroku. So I, okay. I, I've done some, I've done a very little bit of dabbling with the Google cloud platform. Okay. Uh, did one project with AWS. Spent some time with with Azure, like a bit more detail there, and then of course with IBM, the IBM Cloud. Uh, okay. I spent a fair bit of time with that. So no, I but I you know, take your I take your recommendation on that. That's a that's a pretty strong recommendation. you're saying you had to get a good experience. You got what you want, where you wanted to get pretty. Quick. Yeah,
0: yeah. Because I I don't have a strong background in DevOps. Like I'm trying to cure my uh you know my weaknesses in that department, but. Um, I mean, with a few lines of code, I can I can get a little uh, compute instance going. It's totally free. Uh, the database, the Postgres database, is totally free. Uh, there's some limitations, but I mean, when you're when you're if you have like less than ten thousand rows of data, like yeah, you can have at it. Um, it's a for me, it was a great experience. I felt like all powerful all of a sudden, you know, like hey, I got like some stuff in the cloud. So
1: wow, so you um, like spin up a Postgres instance and. Yeah. It's pretty
0: easy to do. It's a, it's a command line, uh, like, I, like I can type in the command line and kick off a, I, I'll get like a, a Postgres um, connection string or like a, the URL for the, the Postgres back through the CLI and then I just plop it in my, um, my environment variables, which you can also communicate through the CLI to set those. And yeah, I mean, it's a, a very painless process, I would say. Nice. Um, and, it, and
1: it's, it's open source too.
0: That's it. So. Well, Heroku is,
1: is, just, it, is it open? Is is the, is the infrastructure?
0: Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how that works. I know somebody, there's a product out there called Doku and Doku is kind of like, like it's, it's a, I think it's the open source version of Heroku, but Heroku okay. is uh they, their whole, their whole product offering is like you can rapidly prototype and not have to be like the, you can just be a programmer and focus on business logic, and uh, they make it th- very easy to get all the all the tools you need to rapidly prototype your ideas.
1: Wow, strong record, and the free is nice as well. Uh, yeah. For for as good as Azure is, it's free for a period, and then, oh, the, okay. then the meter's running. So uh,
0: yeah, yeah, uh, Roku will get you by. So their their free thing, like if you if you try and go to the website and you haven't visited in the last like. 10, 20 minutes, it'll sit there like you, it's waking up. So if you right. want, you've got to pay a premium, which is maybe like $8 a month or something like that. If you want the thing living all the time, but yeah, maybe, maybe check it out. Uh, I, I certainly wouldn't rule it out, but I know, I know that uh, you know, Microsoft is serving a, a certain breed of of need and, and Heroku has their own little market share. So I'm sure there's probably like a reason you would go with one versus the other, but. Yeah.
1: Well it sounds sounds pretty good. And that, that's a very tempting price as well to say, you know, that and, and the psychology of that, say, well here's the you're gonna run into this problem and we'll solve that problem and it's gonna be like, you know, ten bucks a month to solve that problem. Right by when you do that. Totally. I don't know if you ever have you ever used uh N-Groc? Uh
0: I've heard I've heard about it. Um that's where you can open up like your computer can talk to the internet, right? Exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. You can
1: do you can do prototyping on your local local system. Okay. And I was running into a problem with a uh, uh, a chatbot setup, and I was just in my head. And I was using the the free version of of N-Grock. Okay. And I used. I said, you know what? Maybe I, I've tried five things. I just can't spend more time on this. I'm gonna try the paid version. Let's see what happens. And my problems just poof, like that, they went away. Really? And I think that was kind of, it wasn't, they're not being <laughs> cynical about it. But I thought, you know what? I've, this is like the best 12 bucks a month I've ever spent. Really? Because they, honestly, there were these just intractable things and they were, they were pro- you know, when you have a, a, a bug and the same thing happens all the time, I can debug that. But these were intermittent problems. You think you had them nailed and they come back again? Oh, oh wow. Just brutal. And yeah. all, the, all it wanted was 12 bucks a month. And it went away. <laughs> oh. Fantastic. Oh.
0: Yeah, that's that's some that's some classic like, uh, penny. What what do they call it? Pennywise. pennywise dollar foolish. Pound yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Pound, pennywise pound foolish. Pound,
1: pound foolish. I say we say uh, in Canada we don't use pounds, oh. but everything. So.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Fair Yeah, the, the the metaphor sticks. Just pay the twelve bucks, folks, and and have an amazing experience.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. So anybody who's listening is thinking about getting about paying for the NGROC for the paid the uh, business subscription. Pay it. Yeah. It's magic.
0: Amazing. Cool. So I had some questions, uh, f- basically tips for newcomers to this, to this world of deep learning. And I was wondering, what is something, uh, someone new to deep learning uh, with structured data, what, what could they do that um, they, they would master the skill set or like 80% of the skill set?
1: That's a that's a really good question, and I, I I think one of the other I was listening to one of the other uh, podcasts, you did, and you asked that yes, that 80 20 question, which is a yeah. fantastic question because it's such a dilemma. So I'm saying, well, in order to in order to crack this, that I have to learn about Kubernetes and Docker and uh, better better get to speed on HTML five, and by the time you're done, everything you need to learn, it's it's a lifetime of, of studying. Right. So that's a really good question to ask. So what what do you get to the point where you can at least you know enough to know what you don't know and, and make some progress. Yes. So for somebody who becoming into deep learning cold, you'd need a, I think well, while I'm a huge fan of deep learning and I think there are a lot of applications for it where classic machine learning or like non, non uh, deep learning approaches could be replaced by deep learning. There's no substitute for doing that background. So mm-hmm. even doing uh, the, the Andrew Ng uh, machine learning course, it's, it's, it's like eight years old now, so it's it's been around for a while. It has uh, matlab assignments in it for the d- programming assignments. So there's there's lots of, wrong with it, but it does a great job. Just a fantastic mm. job of laying out the basics of machine learning. For I me, mean, doesn't have that. So I think you have to do that. you Don't have an academic background in machine learning. You have to have that. Okay. And then in terms of something that's efficient to get to the point where you feel comfortable with the code, I think Jeremy Howard's uh, Fast AI course. There's there's nothing better, and it's free. Okay. So there is a ton of, there's a ton of code examples there, uh, fantastic lectures, and because the videos are in a, in a classroom setting, so you, you get to hear the questions that the people in the class ask, and they're great mm-hmm. questions. You think, oh, I, I was thinking that, but I didn't really didn't crystallize in my mind. There's a really good forum for it, and there are thousands of people who have done the course, so there's lots of different people at different levels of experience starting it who have, who have done it. And it really goes. It does a really broad range. So I mentioned before, it has an actual section on learning with structured data. It has a lot of stuff about uh, uh, image uh, transfer learning. So it really, it really covers a a a broad scope. It has uh, a a lot of coding that you can do. Some of the challenge there is if you were to if you were to really spend all the time, you probably you know, take several months to even get through. Okay half of that course, but you can do it at a more, uh, at a shallower level and still get a lot of benefit out of it. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so that's something I'd say is is a really good uh, sort of uh, uh, accelerant yeah. to the, the path for deep learning. I haven't seen anything anything better than that for somebody who's who wants to get to the point where they actually can do some applications, but they know enough to take the next step.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I haven't heard that answer yet. And so yeah, you're totally right. I, I do have like a a cadence with the questions and sometimes I'll revisit the same question with a lot of people. And I love how I never get the same answer. So <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, so I appreciate I appreciate your uh, insight on that. And so you might know what's coming next then. I'm gonna invert this question. What is something that uh, maybe is overly difficult that the newcomer should stay away from?
1: In the area of deep learning?
0: Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: So I think
2: there,
1: um, I, there's, there's a lot of attention right now for the things for, I guess, in two areas. One is fancy architectures to sort of say, okay, here's what you need to know to be able to actually come up with some novel architectures. And I'd say for that, that people who are doing that successfully are usually in an academic or they're a large industrial setting. They've got a team of people, they've been studying it for a long time. They've got a really, really deep understanding of the math behind it. Yeah. And I think it can be tempting when you get that first taste of you and you say, Well, I'm gonna to start to just try to slam together some different architectures. So say, so, well, let's say I'll try different layers and different combinations, see what happens. And and there, my experience has been it's a little bit like, you know, if you get enough monkeys, we're gonna get Shakespeare, we're gonna get Hamlet out of some of them because just <laughs> need more monkeys, more typewriters. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't work that way. It just it just doesn't. So I'd say getting into in trying to do uh, uh, novel stuff with the architecture probably isn't a good thing. The yeah. other thing I'd say, and this may be controversial, people would say, you know what, I, I don't agree with it. Some of the courses say, well, but like implement it right from the from the ground up. So do an implementation from from raw Python, don't worry about using TensorFlow or or PyTorch. You know what? Yeah, I guess you know when I was when I was back in university, people did wrote operating systems, and they learned a lot when they did that. But uh, don't, you don't you don't need that to use an operating system competently.
2: Right. And I'd
1: say for a lot of people who are beginners, probably I would uh, what I've seen in courses is they, they introduce that uh, that thing where you're going to have to uh, implement something uh, by hand. I don't think that's a a great use of time for a beginner. And again, mm. that could be some people you know people who know more than me. May disagree with that. But my experience has been, I didn't get a whole lot out of that part of things, taking the frameworks, learning what the frameworks and using them to solve practical problems that helped me learn. And that helped motivate me to, to learn more. Mm,
0: excellent. Uh, if you, so if you had to start over on becoming a deep learning professional, what would be the first step you would take?
1: That's a, that's a good question. Um, so to sort of say something that, that didn't go, that I sort of, if, I had, if I could look back now, I would have done differently?
0: Uh, yeah, you could, you could approach it that way. Mainly like, like if I had to start tomorrow, I was like, I've heard this podcast. I'm inspired. I need to go to this website or I need to go focus on these fundamentals or basically like the very first step.
1: You know what I think I would have done? I, you, honestly, like I love Keras. I think it's a fantastic framework, but I think I would have bitten the bullet and worked directly with TensorFlow okay. from the get-go. So mm. that be, that's going kind of against what I said before about doing things too low, but I think I probably got onto Keras a little bit too fast. And the okay. abstractions there, I, 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 I got down some raffles because of that. And I think I would, have been, I would have been more efficient. I would have been able to take advantage of the efficiency that Keras can give you and also understand where it's not going to do the job if I'd had more confidence using TensorFlow from, from, from the get-go. So that's something I, I, I do kind of regret spending more time. And at that time, TensorFlow had like a completely horrible approach. So there were mm-hmm. some really dumb things about it. But I think I should have got over myself and just knuckled down and, and used TensorFlow from, uh, from the get-go. And I, and I knew there were other people who were learning who were using it directly. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I thought, oh, those those chumps, and and you know what, they were they were right. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: that's something. And now that now that there's TensorFlow too, it, things are things are a bit simpler. Uh, but I would encourage people to to not just kind of go only spend their time on Keras because there's uh, there's flexibility in TensorFlow that's worth exploring
2: mm-hmm. as a
1: beginner. And you get to a point where like if you learn how to drive automatic, learning how to drive standard afterwards can be a lot harder than if you get your license.
0: Yeah, no, that I can, I can appreciate that. And TensorFlow is still kind of, it's not as low level as like trying to do all this in NumPy or something. So you're, I I still think you're sticking true to your recommendation. Like, yeah, don't, don't go after like making neural networks from scratch when you're starting out, but maybe don't go all the way to this abstraction of Keras and, and focus on something like TensorFlow. I love it.
1: I I I think exclusion of of learning more about TensorFlow. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah that, that's that's a recommendation and the other thing I think I probably would also recommend i I tried to do a lot of coding to begin with mm-hmm. but I, it probably not enough okay and I tried pretty quickly to, to find a practical problem to solve mm-hmm. and get a real data set when my, my job at IBM get a real data center to solve a practical problem um, but i i maybe it would have helped there if I had set the goal, so I was doing it kind of um, when I say it's kind of back in the uh, in the garage. So I said, oh, I mean, I'll try to see what happens, and I'll show it when I've had a chance to see something. I think I would have motivated myself better, and maybe had some more support from the organization, had I been said, okay, you know what, I'm here, I'm trying to take deep learning and try to use it to see if we can predict whether uh, a, a DB2 a ticket a customer opens about for DB2 support issue is going to get escalated. Mm. And that was the problem I was trying to solve. I think had I done that earlier be more open kimono about it use use that term it would have had better results and people would have understood the progression as opposed to coming out and say oh look at this and say well where did that come from and why why are you doing that why are you using (laughs) deep learning so there are a bunch of questions there that people had had a chance to you you were talking before about the stakeholder how do you keep the stakeholders on board yeah that was probably a counter example on how to do it
2: all right. Because I was learning
1: at the same time, and I was a bit self-conscious. Then, what they really don't like it? So, no, I should have yeah. said, no, "If they don't like it, maybe I'll learn something from what they'll say." About it.
0: Yeah, I I think there's some great learning nuggets there. So, thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Uh, what are your top three tips for someone to monetize their deep learning skills with structured data and or chatbots?
1: That's a great question. So the monetizing is really important because there's so much to learn and then turning it into a, uh, either a living or a, a healthy, healthy side gig. Mm-hmm. It, there's, there's a challenge there. I, I think if you, if you look at, uh, one thing I'd say is don't go where everybody else is going because it doesn't matter who you are. There's going to be somebody who, and this is part of the nature of data science, you always come across like that person knows more and they've been to school longer and they're smarter or they're a better coder or they've got this kind of background. you know. How can I compete with with that person? So I'd say, try to find something that isn't what everybody else is doing. Mm -hmm. So deep learning with structured data is something I said, this is something that isn't, nobody's looking at this. So maybe there's an opportunity there to explore. Yeah. and the same thing, I guess, with, with, with chatbots as well. There's some people who are kind of, I, I believe, are poo-pooing chatbots where I believe there's, there's potential there. So mm-hmm. that, that's something I, is, I think is worth doing. Look for something where not everybody is, is beating a path there. Um, having a portfolio. So you, you asked a question before about, about candidates You're looking for a portfolio. So mm-hmm. it, I don't think that's, that's uh, necessary, but it certainly helps. To have some code that you've, that you've shared, and uh, somebody else has, has provided some critique on is, is important. And with that, I think doing some kind of publication, so not necessarily, excuse me, a book, and the book, you know, it's a book is a huge investment of time. It's a, it's a great experience, but it really is a, a, ton, of, a ton of time. Mm-hmm. But uh, Medium is a fantastic platform for sharing technical information. And it's, okay. it's pretty easy to do and people learning things every day. It can be a really simple, it doesn't need to be something profound. Maybe it's just a problem that you had and how you solved it. So you think of it like, it's like Stack Overflow with slightly more, um, a little bit more polite and some longer form text.
2: Yeah. So
1: if, just about anybody who's working as a, as a developer will have something that they've learned, they can share. And if they're learning it for the first time, they can take that, they can take that persona and say, maybe other people have done this, but here's my experience as a beginner going through the process of uh, you know, deploying a model and the web, or um, uh, uh, take my first steps with Docker. So those kinds of things, there's an audience for that.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: learn from doing that, and it helps to create your, your brand, if you'll excuse
2: mm-hmm.
1: that term. Um, and then the other thing, I think, and this is something I'd say more uh, you know, I've, I've, uh, for somebody who's taking more of an entrepreneurial gig is to say you want to have if look for somebody you can work with and who has complementary skills mm. so i think sometimes people will say well who am i going to be if i'm going to try to do something uh, as a uh, as a business i want somebody i'll get along with so that person may have the same similar personality or similar skills and maybe you know uh every steve jobs needs a a, a Wozniak, and every mm-hmm. bill gates needs a was, anyway, yeah, yeah, that you know, you have you, you need a, a, the the ying needs a yang. So having somebody who's maybe a bit more business oriented, if you're technical, mm-hmm. somebody who has more of a, a marketing bent, somebody um, who's maybe a little bit more uh, it, it, I don't know if if you tend to be very conservative somebody who's maybe a bit more uh, risk taking, or or vice versa, if you're if you're more risk taking, somebody who would be more conservative.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It helps to get better decisions, and you've got a built-in uh, I don't see i will call it critique, but built, built that, that built in feedback. So, whatever you produce together is going to be better. Because you've got somebody mm-hmm. who will be in opposition and kind of call you out and say, Oh, I really want to do that. Does that really make sense? So it's not all about the technology, it's about creating something crazy that is useful that people will pay for. Mm-hmm. So, having, having, a, having somebody you're working with directly who can provide a balance and, you know, there'll be conflict there. So, be prepared for that. And, uh, but the end result is going to be better. Having somebody who has a, comes from a different perspective, different educational background, different set of skills, uh, will produce something that's that's better in the end.
0: Yeah. I, I love where you went there with that, where it's kind of like you need, well, I guess you could be a one person show, but if you're looking for a one plus one equals three scenario, exactly what you're talking about is where is, is the whole reason why you seek these people out. And, uh, I personally crave something like that. I, I know I'll find it in my life, but that that one plus one equals three is how you really get some leverage with, you know, releasing your things out in the wild and hopefully uh, you know, make delivering value and making tons of money in the process. So.
1: Yeah. And it's hard. And if you look at the, the examples of people who've been successful entrepreneurs, they may they may fail three or four times. Yeah. It's not, it's not easy and there are no guarantees and sometimes people have have kind of not particularly great ideas and they're hugely successful
2: mm-hmm. Other
1: people have fantastic ideas. They're technically brilliant. And they're just, the timings the, the timing's not right. So, yeah. uh, unfo- the universe unf- is unfair. Unfortunately, the market's not entirely <laughs> fair. Uh, but no. to do that, be able to do something that you love and make a decent living at it. That's a great blessing. That's, that's really, you know, I think we all, we'd all want that yeah. for ourselves and for the people that we, we work with.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, why do you believe that focusing on the whole stack is most important? I know you touched on this, but I just want to, I want to nail this head on.
1: So I think if, uh, so if you're working in a large organization, so in my, my, my everyday job, people do specialize. So the people on my team will specialize on creating the model, but if they don't have an understanding about how the model's deployed, they don't have an understanding about the whole sort of end-to-end process they can make some naive assumptions about where the data comes from or how the actual end client is going to be using it and that's really important for for my team i i uh, make sure everybody is actually c- consuming the end result the end result is three or four teams down the line but i'd say everybody needs it, it it's it's uh, manifested in an app and i ask everybody in the team to install the app and and see and and work with it themselves so they see what that end result is like mm-hmm. so Having some understanding so that it's not sort of just completely mysterious how, things, how that whole process goes so you can ask intelligent questions and, um, you know, get to know the people who are doing the rest of who – are, who are taking what, what we create, the, the model, and, and delivering it to where clients can use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's important to have that, that kind of skill, to just to be able to to be able to talk to the people and the rest of the organization in an intelligent way. I think it also shows some respect. Do you care about what they do? hmm You've gone to the, the effort to understand what they're, the, the important role they're playing so that you can have an intelligent conversation. They're not going to be the expert the way that they are, um, let's say, about Kubernetes, uh, uh, for example. But to have at least enough understanding, you can have an intelligent conversation. I think it shows that, it shows that respect. So I think that's, that's important in a large organization. Mm-hmm. And then for an entrepreneur, for somebody who's, who's starting out small, you basically you have to do everything yourself. Yeah. Even if all you're doing is just creating a little demo, you're not going to have that, you know, another team to specialize in. And being able to get something that's working end-to-end, even if it's really simple, even if it's a very, very simple example, that'll give you the confidence to do other demos and to be able to uh, at least have an idea how it's going to scale.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And ultimately, you know, if, if it's successful, that scaling part probably will be dealt with by people who, specialize in the scaling aspects but if you haven't looked at the whole end-to-end stack and have some understanding of it it's going to be hard for you as an entrepreneur to be able to make the right judgments and make an assessment about well what if i'm successful am i going to be successful and instead it's going to fail or am i going to be successful and feel confident that it will scale and the success will continue to grow
0: yeah that's that's excellent i'm uh Heroku just keeps ringing in my ears right now. That's my superpower with exactly what you're describing there. Uh, But I don't, I don't mean to uh, uh, do the shameless plug, but that that was what's going on through my mind.
1: That's good. I mean, if if you're passionate about something like that, and it sounds like again, I haven't, I've, I've heard of it, but I haven't used it directly myself. Mm -hmm. It sounds like there's a huge amount of potential there. So. You can use Heroku f- as, uh, for, for web serving as well. Yeah. Like you can set up a, okay, so there mm-hmm. you've got a situation. You can set up a, like a simple uh, web page where you control everything. So it's not like um, some of the frameworks where you're, you're, you're limited somewhat to, in, in terms of what you can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's another area. I, I don't know about from, from your experience. Everybody has some, has some sort of place where they had to do a little bit of web programming. Yeah. For me, it was many, 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 many years ago. But then mm-hmm. I was totally insulated. It was somebody else to do that. And, and recently, I had to have this, had a situation where I had to do some web programming myself. Mm-hmm. And I resisted it. I said, oh, I want to do it. And JavaScript, no, I don't want to. I can do it all in Python. <laughs> and I just resisted, and I whined about it, and I said, oh, I don't want to do it. And then I, I had no choice. I had to do it. Yeah. And I learned a lot. Now, the result is, is very modest. It's not, it's, it's not impressive at all. But I learned a lot, and I'm so glad that I did it. Because mm-hmm. now I have now it's not that mystery anymore, or it's just somebody else's somebody else's problem to do. Yeah. And when I need to, I can expand on that, or I can I can talk to a web developer and say, here's in my kind of, you know very primitive way, here's what I want to do, and be able to at least have some kind of a conversation with the, with uh, that person. Mm-hmm. So that was a that was something I you know I learned that that was getting even a little bit of uh, web development under my belts is something I needed to do,
0: mm-hmm.
1: even though I didn't, I didn't really appreciate how much I needed to do it.
0: Yeah. And would you, so it sounds like it helps you as a manager, it helps you maybe delegate better or, or have these dialogues with the actual doers. It, hopefully I'm using. No, that's yeah. There, it, but, okay.
1: Yeah. The, the, uh, the people who are the uh, direct contributors, the people yeah. who are true, who they're, who are, they're, they're doing, they're doing the work every day. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. It helps. It, it, it helps a lot. Uh, it, it, there's a bit of as a manager, there's a bit of a danger there because if you make it your more your full-time job, then you can be in contention for resources. You never mm. want to be that where somebody who's reporting to you and you're saying, well, who gets to use the, this this instance?
2: Yeah, well, I want to
1: use it because I'm I've got a I've got a project that's due, and you need to use it the project that you have to do. And yet I'm assessing your performance. That's no good.
2: Ooh, so
1: yeah, it's something you have to be a little bit careful about. That you want to get a taste and want to have it. You don't want to be doing anything that is so central that it's going to compete with the resources, either, you know, people resources or machine resources that people on your team need for them to be successful.
0: Mm, Wow. Always want to be making
1: the team stronger, even if it's at your expense. It sounds altruistic, but it's it's absolutely true. You make the team stronger, things are going to be fine for you as a leader. If you start Mm. to undermine the team to try and build up yourself as an individual,
2: it's going to be bad. Hmm.
0: Wow. Yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, there's not many teams I've, really had that sort of experience on. So it's definitely thought provoking what you're sharing. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, uh, where are people falling short with leveraging their relational database?
1: So, uh, I know you talking, we were talking before the show, you've, you've got a background in relational database, so you've used, mm-hmm. used, you've used access. So, uh, you, you, you know, the, 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 the beauty of SQL, what the, yeah. the, the value of that. So, I think to a certain extent it's good. So I, I've seen SQL having another moment. So I've seen a lot of articles saying any data scientist worth their salt needs to needs to learn SQL. You just have to you have to do it. Too bad you don't like it. It's you just that you have to do it. So that's that's yeah. encouraging. But I think there's still a lot of you look at a, a relational database system. There's all this this rich metadata. You've got you know essentially tables that describe all the tables. And it's all accessible in a structured fashion. You can find out what all the table names are, find out the types of all of the columns. You can all this information about the information that's there.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: it's, there's a standard way to do it. And it's basically, you know, it'll vary from one vend- relational database vendor to another. But that, that's, that's, it's, that, it's that idea is everywhere.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: you've got tons of this stuff. You've got the world, like every bank in the world, running on relational database. So every government in the world running on relational database. Mm-hmm. People in their daily lives i don 't know, but I, I was thinking about this probably, there are probably hundreds of tables just you know doing online banking buying things that get updated as i 'm just living my life yep. so there 's all this all this information, and you look at a lot of the uh, where the attention of machine learning and deep learning in particular is it 's a different kind of data it's interesting and there are certainly the problems there, but I think there's there's a lot of structure. It, it's a little it was an analogy for this. If you're trying to do training for a natural language model and you say, uh, somebody says, well, how about you use Wikipedia? Wikipedia, is all this information, there's meta information. Ah, eh, Wikipedia is old. I, I want to give something. Is there a pile of PDFs around here somewhere I can kind of root around in? i say kind of leaving money on, the, like, money on the table, but leaving an opportunity un, untapped. Mm-hmm. And I, I really haven't seen a whole lot of, Uh, do research or people looking at that saying, you know, for example, what would it be like to have a a, a crawler within a a corporate environment, a crawler that went through and uh, collected metadata in in like a whole database and then spun up a bunch of, just say, you know what, they have a bunch of uh, uh, models running in the background. You do thousands of them. Maybe, you know, you do, do thousands, tens of thousands, millions and two of them actually produce results. Two of them say, you know what, this this the we can, we can create a model that actually provide good inference on this particular data. And that's just running, that's just that's just there running in the background. And they say, okay, well, this is this is for all the data that we have, we've identified two or three places where there's there's actual potential for this technology to uh, create high fidelity predictions.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, does that provide some business value? And then, you, then you, you get you part of the way there as opposed to somebody from the outside saying, well, I think we, we, if we created a model that looked at our quarterly sales and uh, correlated it with weather and blah, 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 maybe that'll work. Maybe it won't. Mm-hmm. But if you look at relational data, maybe you could automatically narrow down the the models that, that could provide good results, then see as a business benefit, go from there. So anyway, that, that's something I, that's just, a, it's, it's, a, it's a, it's a notion but I think there, there's there's potential. there's potential there to marry uh, deep learning and structured data in, in various interesting ways. Uh, yeah, so mm-hmm. I'd love to see people, people taking more advantage of that.
0: Yeah, so uh, I just, just to pry here a little bit, I was curious, like, are you talking about maybe these models monitoring how people are exploring the data and then maybe recommending new indexes or new ways to relate the data so the queries are more optimized or is that a, where's the. Yeah,
1: meta- so, I was thinking less from the point of view of a, a database vendor, although that's okay. being done, um, uh, not to give any, any proprietary secrets from my former employer, but Oracle is doing the same thing. So they, they're building in, in within the, the relational database engine, taking advantage of machine learning to do things okay. like optimize, get optimal indexes. Okay. I was thinking more for a, within a corporate environment where they've got a, a, a database set up and they've got uh, hundreds, thousands of, of tables, and they're they're thinking, well, you know, we've got this data science team and what do we ask them to do next? What what could they do that would provide benefit for our business? And it will tend to be a okay, here's here are three business problems, let's kind of throw some data science time at them and see which one works
2: mm-hmm. and
1: then say, Okay, there's operating business I, I'm thinking as a way to pre-qualify that work you could do a crawl through relational database to see assemble models even randomly and uh, see which ones produce high fidelity results and maybe spend the time to say are those ones going to provide business value and then when you go and implement you've got you already have uh, validation that the data is sufficient and there's reasonable predictive power to, to take the next step. So, yeah. So I guess I'm saying it's, it's not from the relational database providers perspective. It's from the, the, the corporate user's perspective. How mm. can they get the most out of their data?
0: Okay. Excellent. And then you're kind of like, you're not, you're trying to come to the table with zero assumptions and, uh, put your data scientists on it. And maybe they, like you said, co- they do like a million models or something like that. And maybe one or two of them, uh, Produce some sort of like meaningful result. That's kind of what you're going after. Yeah,
1: Yeah. excellent. And 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 make and and automate the the pre vetting of those of those models to say, okay, guys, this is here here are three or four that look like they produce decent results. Yeah, show some business value with these.
0: Okay, excellent, cool. Thanks for letting me uh, pry there a little more. So I was curious. uh, What do you think is the big domino that is going to that we could knock over? to um, make self-driving cars like that problem being solved. I know I kind of switch gears on you here a little bit.
1: That's a really, that's a really good question. So ask uh, ask you a question first. So what do you, people sort of fall into the two, the two camps about self-driving cars. So are you a, are you a believer or do you think it's uh it's a pipe dream?
2: About self-driving I cars? It I, th- I,
0: I think it's, I think it's a Holy grail thing. Um, it's, it's uh yeah, I kind of, I'm kind of on the fence, I would say. I'm on the side of the fence where I think it's a holy grail thing.
1: Okay, okay. So, uh, I I've, my opinion on this is, is kind of uh, mellowed a little bit. So, go okay. back a couple of years ago. I thought this is this is coming. It's coming. I've, I, have a, I have a daughter who's 12, and I told her, that, you know, you're not going to need a license because by the time you're going to be driving, this is a few years. But by the time you're driving, it, you won't. i will be something. And I realize now that's kind of probably
2: not going to
1: happen. Yeah, But I do believe that it's that it's coming. Um. I think that maybe some of this is kind of organizational. I'm not sure if the success is going to come from General Motors or uh, or Uber, sort of throwing a ton of money at it and just having this 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 breakthrough. Yeah. I think it's going to have to be a bit more of a organic thing. I uh, I heard a, a talk by um, a guy who's who has a company that they they create a. It, it, it sounds really hokey, but it's in, it's interesting. It's, it's essentially a an add-on. So if you if you have um, a, a recent vehicle that has uh, 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 distance control, so it'll 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 brake automatically if there's car ahead of you. It has lane lane assist. It'll kind of tie those things together, and it keeps a camera on the on the driver to make sure you're 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 actually you're not falling asleep or uh, playing uh, playing a video yeah. game or something.
0: <laughs> yeah
2: and
1: it's it's a little bit it looks a little bit hacked together but the results are really interesting and what i think is what i think there i think that success is it's kind of a bottom-up thing it's not assuming okay we're going to spend 15 billion dollars over the next three years we have to lobby 10 governments and 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 on and on and on it's taking it's cobbling together existing technology so part of the, the system is is it's a an android phone and uh it's it's hooking into the telemetrics of the car, and they test it with various different cars. So they're not they're not sticking with any particular brand. Mm-hmm. And I think that is probably a more fruitful direction towards self-driving cars. Something that kind of approach, as opposed to um uh, the the uh, the Apollo mission. Yeah, which I think is that's the direction, and it ha- that has that has produced some progress but not real success and i don't know if direct, i don't know like if, if, if tesla is, is successful and makes a ton of money and keeps investing in it i don't know if tesla is going to crack on that in in 10 years
2: hmm.
1: i think it needs to be something that's a little bit more uh ground up and is taking making use of existing existing technology having some modest goals to start with yeah. But I think all the other thing is people say, well, we're going to get to, to talk about the different levels of self-driving, we're going to get to mm-hmm. level, you know, level four. Yeah, it, it has to be more incremental. So that's one thing. The, the, on, the other, on the other hand, I think another way that there could be a breakthrough, and this sounds that sound like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth, if a, if a jurisdiction like uh, Singapore. So I had the chance to spend a, a couple weeks in Singapore for work last year. Amazing okay. place. Very interesting. If a, if a jurisdiction like singapore they made it they made a political decision to say we are going to commit to make this work from a from a infrastructure point of view from a legislative point of view from the insurance industry point of view and there they have something it's, it's a it's an enclosed space so it's not a it's not a huge sprawling country um the the car ownership is neither too high or too low, so there there, there are lots of cars there, but it's not like it's constant gridlock.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If they were to make that decision, if they were to say we are going to make ourselves the the hub of this new technology that's going to change the world, then I think that could move things forward. Mm-hmm. But it's very very few places. But like Singapore, I think, could do that. Um, uh, maybe Dubai, like some some place like that, where you have you have a very sort of a, a high-tech hub excuse me it's somewhat enclosed doesn't have its own native auto industry because i think that's that's part of the problem i i, I worked for General motors as, as at back when is the university it's a fantastic company but yeah they're not going to solve the problem with self driving cars that's just not in their in their dna wow uh yeah. so actually it's those those two things either something that's ground up or something where a uh uh, a jurisdiction decides they're going to do it. And, and, mm. I, and Singapore in particular, it's a great place, but it's a, it's a little bit of a police state as well. Yeah. And that probably, to be cynical, that probably would help. They can just say, okay, sorry, you know, as of June 26, 2027, nobody's driving. It's all its all self-driving. Yeah. And people would say, well, okay, well, that's the way it is.
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's, you brought up some really, so for, first of all, I had, I've, I've been kind of like coaching myself to have strong, hold strong opinions weekly. So like, like the thing, (laughs) the thing that you're, the stuff that you're sharing with me, like it definitely makes me think so. And with any big problem, you want to be kind of incremental in how you solve it. And I love what you're talking about with the, um, like, like any car you could, you could augment it with these third party tools and, may, and potentially enable it like 20% self-driving or something like that. Yeah. And so, and so maybe it's more of like a, you know, you don't go to Tesla to get the entire pie. You you kind of source it. The other people kind of um, specialize in different components and that's how that gets solved. And then another thing you mentioned was like the incentives are just messed up. Like if we're, it, it just, it's a reoccurring theme that I see in the, in the world, or like how I see reality is, uh, like so, sometimes you have to start with the incentives.
1: <laughs> yeah. So what do you see, what would your mind the incentives for, uh, uh, for self-driving self-driving cars? Let's say for individuals, what do you see as the thing
2: that would sell yeah, individuals on?
0: it? Well, I mean, I, w- I was just thinking more for like the, the people that are, um, capable of innovation they're just, they're not incentivized to innovate. So for, for, um, for people, I I haven't really, that, that wasn't where the light bulb went off. I might have to chew on that for a little bit. I mean, if it, if it improved my bottom line, like if I was able to reduce my, like I wouldn't have to pay auto insurance anymore. And not that it's like a huge cost driver, but I mean, if it, if it was substantial enough, I might consider like, Hey, you know, um, and actually when cars get kind of old, you know, they can become a little expensive to maintain and buying new cars. You know, nobody likes being in debt and stuff. If, uh, so I, I could see those kind of, if, if those incentives would get aligned there, but also with just the people in charge of innovation, like if the incentives are set up, they will, they will innovate.
1: <laughs> that, yeah, that's right. If people feel like the, what they're doing, uh, they, they, if they feel like, you know, I can make a decent living at this, yeah. And I'll get recognition for it, and people will like it who wouldn't want it who wouldn't want to do that and I think you know, for self driving cars there are lots of people who would love it It's the kind of thing you can tell you at a at a dinner party and you can say, "Oh, I'm working on this people people love it like they they want to hear about it yeah um but it's a it's a pretty close priesthood right now. The people who are actually working on it professionally it's a, a very quite hierarchical and mm-hmm. there's only <laughs> a certain number of organizations doing it, with the exception of this uh, uh, project that I, that I talked about before that takes a different approach.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. Um, so, I, yeah, th- this is kind of like a mix mash of questions, so you just have to bear with me here. Sure. <laughs> what are you uh, most excited about to visit Zimbabwe?
1: Zimbabwe? So, I, it's, I think it's, uh, I, you know, I've never, never been to Africa. Okay. And I'd love to go. And I think the interesting thing about Zimbabwe is it's been through. I mean, it's, it's been through a lot. this you know had a, a, uh, oh, yeah. a British colony, and then a a pretty you know pretty oppressive racist regime, then transition, and then you know uh, did the regime regime kind of was okay, and then got worse over time. And uh it's, it's a really rich country. There are incredible resources there. It, it's a really interesting climate. The uh, the kind of the uh, uh, the background, it, it, there's a very high kind of uh, value for education as well, and some of that's been I think it's been undermined because of what the economic stuff that they've been through. So it's just it just really strikes me as being as being very interesting. And then there's the natural, being the, the um, Victoria Falls is there. I'd love to see that. But it's some place I'd just I'd just be fascinated, fascinated. Mm-hmm. The history of it really interests me. And the promise as well. So I think at some place that there's there's huge, huge potential there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, I guess from from a from from a distance, you know, this may I don't. Know, it, it's just the resilience. The people are just they're just resilient too. It's been been the with like hyperinflation and you know, two different kinds of really oppressive governments and all this, you know, just a lot, a lot of aggravation and, and people just keep, keep going. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to see Zimbabwe. Hmm.
0: Amazing. Yeah. How, how has your daily cup of tea and Bible reading served you in living the best version of you? <laughs> well,
1: um, <laughs> um, yeah, so the tea, I guess it's something I, I you know, it's, it's pretty weak. It's just, it's, it's regular orange Pico tea. Mm-hmm. Uh, what well, my dad used to call floor sweepings. I, my dad came from my dad and mom both came from the U.K. and dad was a bit. He never drank tea, but he's a bit of a tea snob. Nevertheless, okay. And he you know, <laughs> the, the the standard brand here in Canada is Red Rose, and he called it floor sweepings because he's like, oh, he's, he's actually probably right. Like it's not it's not anything. Anyway, so I had that, <laughs> um, and uh, it's just you know it's comforting. It, there's a bit of a ritual to put the kettle on and, and let water boil and you know, do, do mm-hmm. certain things while the water's boiling. So and that's, uh, and then, you know, it's kind of, kind of feel better. I'm always wake up kind of sleepy. So you get a bit of a little bit of caffeine. So that's, that's comforting. And, uh, yeah, the, the so I try to try to read some of the Bible every, every day. It's a, it's a challenging book. I mean, there's, there's, there's some, some parts of it. Okay. This is very clear. And some parts, even a modern translation. Wow. This is, this is pretty challenging.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, it's always, always some, some uh, you know, thought provoking, and uh, kind of set. Try to set the tone, the tone for the day. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, don't always live up to that, by any means. But uh, you know, it's kind of sort of bread, bread for me in the morning, for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I, I really respect the uh, morning routines that when I, when I ask people these questions, because just to give the audience a little bit of background, that was uh, kind of like a daily non-negotiable for you. And uh, yeah, I just I, I hear that a lot about really successful people that they have, they have a structure, like you said, a, a ritual uh, that they practice in the morning and it just sets the tone for the whole day. So uh, anyway, thanks for sharing that. I, I really enjoyed your response to that.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: what was your big lesson you learned from your first submission of your master's thesis?
1: Okay. So this is back at the University of Toronto. The uh, advisor, Graham Hurst, is a brilliant guy. Really, really, really smart. Um, and uh, he had kind of you know, led me through my uh, process there. And I was working, working on the thesis. And uh, I thought I, I thought it was pretty good. I thought this was pretty good. And he took a look at it. And he basically said, no, this is crap. Like, this is really isn't good. And I had wow. spent months on it. And it was such a shock. You know, when you, you, you think you're going to hear one thing and you hear something else. And mm. I basically just shut off. I said, okay, that's it. I didn't listen to what he said. I just heard this isn't, this isn't very good. Mm. And I, I, remember I, went, so I went back to the place where I, where I was staying. And I, I couldn't sleep. I was so bothered by this. And it, my, my first reaction was, well, who does he think he is to tell me? And he was right. But <laughs> I had you know, that reaction. You that, it's natural. Not, it's natural. You have not that not. defensive reaction. But it, it got me angry after it. I'm going I'm to show him. So I went down to the campus. This is the days before uh, even having a computer home, let alone a computer that would connect to uh, uh, the nascent internet.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
1: worked all night. So I started working on it. And bit by bit, it got better. And that was enough of an uh, incentive. It was sort of enough momentum to keep going. I thought, okay, then I reread his comments. You know what, I, I, A, he's right. And B, what he's saying isn't impossible. It's not really saying this is crap. He's saying parts of this are crap and here's some things you can do to improve it. Mm. And that really made the difference. So uh, you know, over, over time, it improved it, it, resubmitted it, it got, it got accepted. And, and move move on from there. Hmm. But it came close. Like I I, I I almost had a reaction when I got there. I said, well that's you know, too bad. <laughs> I, I, I give up or this is I won't accept this. This is unacceptable. Yeah. That's hard. It, it I guess it's something hearing bad news like that in a way that doesn't crush you and that you can get what you get information out of it and do something with that information, it's hard. It's yeah. it's it's hard, particularly if you if you know something's not going so well and you hear some bad news. But you say, okay, I was kind of prepared for that. But when it's a surprise, it's it's pretty tough. Mm-hmm. And my experience has been, with with very few exceptions, like everybody has failures. It's mm-hmm. it's part it's part of life. If you never have any never had any failures, you're probably doing whatever you're doing is so you're not extending yourself to any extent. So you're you're always in the, always in the safe zone. Yeah. and it's it's a bit trite. And people sometimes say when they, you know, they've had a long string of success, saying, "Well, here's how you should deal, you should deal with failure." But I think it is really important not not lose, not to get discouraged, not to generalize that failure to every aspect of your professional career, every aspect of your life, and to try to get something get something you can use out of that. Mm-hmm. I think most people, if they've kind of survived through that, they'll look back and say, yeah, "That actually was." A useful. I got something. It was painful to go through,
2: mm-hmm. but I
1: got something useful out of that. And I I I learned a lot from that. It's sometimes, you know, this is also a bit right. You learn a lot more from those failures than you do from from the successes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The
1: failures, you know, the lessons you learn from a failure, you don't you don't forget those.
0: Yeah, yeah. The candor that that he that he gave you, or the, in in the feedback that he gave you. Do you, would you say it's it or is it safe to say that as, as hard as it was to hear that it actually propelled you to the, the finish line faster than if he was yeah. kind of like sugarcoating and
1: yeah, absolutely. That's okay. That's absolutely it. Yeah. I he was, that he was relatively and he, he wasn't mean about it, yeah he was direct. And I think had he been, I may, I may have kind of argued with him mm-hmm. or said, you know what, this is actually fine and it wasn't fine. So yeah. it did, it made it clear. A, it was clear that something needed to be done and it did, it gave my emotional reaction wasn't entirely healthy to begin with, mm-hmm. but it did get some wind in my sails again and gave me the get up and go to, to keep fighting, yeah. which is what I, which is what I needed.
0: Yeah. So I, I love, I just, I love that, that aspect of the story. Um, I am, maybe I'm a weirdo, but I'm always seeking candid feedback. I want I want that tough love because I know, I I just I know it helps you grow. And um, some people are they have a hard time giving candid feedback, yeah. uh, and and then obviously it's hard for all of us to um, accept for sure. So anyway, that I just I really like that story, and I wanted to, um, you to just kind of uh, share your big lesson from it. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Mm-hmm. And, and I something I try to apply as a manager because so I have to give people feedback.
0: Right. Trying
1: to do it in a way that isn't going to crush somebody's spirit, mm-hmm. and, it, it, it's, and put it in context as well, and yeah. always say this is this is and this uh, particular thing you should have done things differently. You're great. What well, you, you 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 do a you do a good job, and you're here for a reason because you do a good job. But this needs to be this part of it needs to be addressed. We're going to yeah. work together to make sure that happen. Uh, but at the same time, I'll, I'll be honest with you as well. In some of the management positions I have in the past. I have been tempted to sugarcoat things, particularly mm-hmm. if somebody's not, not, unlike you, maybe somebody isn't that open to feedback. And they say, "Well, I don't want the conflict. So I, and I'm busy today. So I'm just going to kind of say, I'll, I'll say something that I can tell my boss later that I've given the feedback, but I, I know what the message <laughs> must have been
0: because it yeah. would have been
1: conflict. I told.
0: Yeah. That's, that's the, that's, I guess, just the nature of real life, like dealing with the pros and cons of, uh, the human interactions it's more challenging than writing the stinking code <laughs> i swear
1: it it, it it can be it can be. That's
2: why it'd be comforting
1: it's comforting to uh be able to to read the code so in, in your in your day-to-day work what mm-hmm. proportion of time do you would you be like working on working on code versus the interactions and the other sort of other stuff what, what percentage of time
0: it? yeah it, it definitely fluctuates like i like i reflect on today and i feel like there was so much kind of like human interaction service request type thing that, uh, there was, maybe I got like a half an hour of actual real work done. But, um, I, I think when I make sure that people are being taken care of and I'm proactive about giving them good customer service, I, I'm able to focus longer on me stuff. So that's, yeah that might just be the culture that I operate in there. I know the cultures are a lot different, but, um, It's definitely, it's, it's not consistent, which is part of the thing that I love every day is never, you know, it's never, uh, the same scenario. Um, and one thing I do like about that culture there, when you do get a bunch of nerdy engineers that like their, their personalities are not the interpersonal communication skills are just not quite developed, uh, the way that their technical skills are. And so you get a lot of like real matter of fact, Hey, I need this, this sucks. Uh, this is broken or I broke it or so it, I kind of enjoy it, but I s- also see people that just, they'll show up in four months, maybe they're gone. Cause it's just like not for them. So knowing yourself, I think kind of helps, but yeah, I kind of went I, off I, on that one.
1: No, I think that's it. <laughs> You're saying Like, Well, it's true. You have to, you have to have a sense of, is the culture going to be something you'll be happy in because yeah. people aren't going to change all fundamentally. You go into a new, a new team and if that's the way that they are they're not maybe maybe some little adjustments but you need to be able to be happy with mm-hmm. that kind of that kind of communication and if you're not then yeah you have to you have to know yourself
0: yeah absolutely um so here's a here's a good question for you what is uh the best advice you've ever received the best the best
1: advice i've ever i've ever received um that is a that's a that's a really good question. So I, I tell you, this isn't really business day. So I had a, a, an uncle, a very dear man. The, um, he was married to my my mother's sister,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: he was a sweet guy, just just a just a just a great guy. And he, you know, he had you know ups and ups and downs in life. And he took me aside. It would have been in my early twenties. He said, Mark, make sure that you buy a house. And I thought, why is he why is he it Doesn't make any sense. And I realized later that uh, for, for him, and he lived in a, a, a fairly a medium-sized town in Canada and he moved from the UK in the 50s and they never owned. So they had a certain lifestyle. They always had new cars and stuff, but they, never, they always always rented. And I think he always felt like um, he had let his family down because mm-hmm. of that. And you know, people, people can be totally happy renting and totally happily buying. It just, it, and it, 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 in terms of a financial decision, it doesn't make a difference. But it was good advice for me. Mm-hmm. Because I think I saw him and say, "Well, yeah, he always this nice car and nice clothes, and they have kind of a glamorous lifestyle." And I want that. And what he told me was, if I, if he had a chance to rewind, he would have made a different decision, and maybe had, you know, kind of crummier cars like my dad had, but he would have had it felt a little bit more um, settled. So that was that. I think was good advice. It was advice that really rang true because it was it was the the voice of experience. Yeah. And not, not expected advice either.
0: Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah. That if I had to sum up this entire uh, like, like podcast experience, that's like, that's what I really crave when I get people on here is that, that experience. There's nothing that speaks. I, there's nothing that makes me like, like get riled up more than like a fake guru. And so my anti, my antidote to that is basically you know, getting people with real experience on here, sharing. And uh, for that, I am so grateful, so grateful that you came on the show to share your experience.
1: Well, it's, it's been great. I really, really, really enjoyed uh, having a chance to talk to somebody, you know, the the, the chops that you yeah. have and a great micro, I can see the microphone here. That's a fantastic microphone you've got there. So that's, that's very <laughs> professional. So yeah, Thanks, so yeah. It's, it's, it's great. It's great.
0: Amazing. Yeah. And I, uh, I was curious, uh, what is the message that you want the audience to walk away with from all these cans of worms that we opened up today? What can they hold on to, I guess? Well,
1: I guess yeah, I, it's more kind of aspirationally. I think that there is huge potential in data science and uh, machine learning
2: mm-hmm.
1: in particular in deep learning. I think that's where that there's some really rich things there. It's not that hard to get into. And people, particularly if they have deep um, uh, domain knowledge in an area, you can do some amazing things. You see some examples of people who are, uh, you know, they're, they're doctors or they've got a, a specialty that's different and they know, they've learned enough about deep learning to be able to find a good application to it. They can just do amazing things. Mm-hmm. So I'd encourage somebody who's maybe been a little, has some trepidation about it, Give it a try. It's not it's, it, it's, it, it, There are some barriers to overcome, but it's, it really isn't that hard to get to the point where you can do something interesting with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say, I guess, and a, another, uh, for, for chatbots, I'd say some people who may have taken a look at it and feel like either it's, sort of, it's maybe not that uh, profound a technology, it's worth another look. There's, and I would I certainly you know, encourage people to look at the Raza platform as well because I think it's, it does, does a really good job yeah. um, more generally i'd say you know, it's, it's something trying to do uh, a job that you uh, that you enjoy or if you enjoy a large part of it it's a huge blessing so uh, aiming towards that it's a it's a useful useful thing to do and uh, yeah I guess the other thing is that you talked about the, the that failure with the the, the thesis that wasn't so good, uh, particularly people who were beginning their careers, to not be afraid of, of failing and uh, to not get discouraged, to keep, to keep going. And, and particularly in the area of data science where the, uh, that, that uh, uh, imposter syndrome, where people feel like, I'm going to get found out because everybody's smarter than me, everybody knows more than I do, and one of these days, I'm going to get found out and that's going to be it. I'd say just what everybody feels that way. And if they don't, they should feel that way. Cause it's a complex area. There's so mm-hmm. much in data science. It's such a, uh, uh, you know, different math and technology and things that keeps changing all the time. It's, it's hard. So I would encourage people not to be undermined by that. Keep coding. And there are immense opportunities there to do work. That's interesting work. That's meaningful and work that you can make a, you know, a decent, a decent living.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Who, who comes to mind as a role model for like a massive action taker action? I don't know if that's action, a, action yeah, action. action is the <laughs> word here. Massive action. So who is somebody that, that you would say is kind of like a role model for taking massive action?
1: That's a good question. So in terms of uh, the people in the, in the, in the public sphere, I know he's a, he's a, a controversial character, but uh, Elon Musk is he, he's pretty – I mean, to, to make a car company out of, out of nothing, people have failed at that. People who know the car industry have failed at it, and he's managed to hold it together. And Maybe mm-hmm. it'll go bankrupt in six months. I don't know. But that's still – that's really impressive. And that's not all the, all the other stuff that he's yeah. done. I would hate to work for the guy. He must be a, just a brutal to work for. <laughs> but there's somebody who's, 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 who's done – who's really – you know, done something. Um, it, some of the people that I've worked with, uh, there are some uh, bosses that I've had at IBM. There's a lady called uh, Jessica Rockwood, and uh, she was my um, uh, second-last boss at IBM, and she really impressed me. She was somebody who combined the technical technical knowledge, fantastic communicator, just a, a, a natural, um, and really had a uh, an ability to uh, pull a team together. So, and, and uh, just, just a really, really impressive, impressive leader to make things happen. And then my final boss at IBM, uh, Al Martin, who, uh, he was somebody uh, who really had an amazing ability to work with clients. So we had these clients of large companies, spend millions of dollars on IBM products, and Al would get involved when there was a problem. So they would be. Happy. They've had struggles. Sometimes the problem was our fault. Sometimes it was their fault. Sometimes it was both. But any, anyway, he would and he would find a way to marshal a team and communicate with the customer. He could be quite tough with them as well. So he wasn't always just, just kind of, kind of uh, laying down.
2: Mm-hmm. He was
1: a tough boss. He was he was not an easy man to work for either.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: uh, he was genuinely an action taker. He, he was a disruptor. He would he would try to change things and break things and rebuild things. Um, so yeah, so definitely. Those, those are two, the two folks. I have some, some great leaders in my current job at Intact. I haven't, I've only been there for six months now. So I just haven't had the, the, the track record to be able to, to yeah. uh, see the same thing uh, from the folks there. But there, there are some folks there I can see who are uh, uh, extremely impressive in terms of the action takers as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent, thanks for sharing that. And uh, Mike, or Mark, this has been an excellent experience. Thank you so much what is your call to action? Where do people need to go immediately after listening to this interview?
1: Well, if they're interested in the idea of deep learning with structured data, they can go to the the Manning site, uh, Mm manning.com. And uh, my book's there. It's uh, deep learning with structured data. You can take a look at it. There's a a section that's available for free. And uh, you know, take a look. You can also, there's a link there to uh, the repo that contains the code. So you can take a look at the code, see if it's interesting for you. So I'm mm-hmm. very delighted to get feedback on it as well. Um, and then the other thing I'd say, if, if somebody hasn't taken a look at uh, the Fast AI course, Jeremy Howard's Fast AI course, right. interest in deep learning, take a look at it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's fantastic. Um, it's free. It's, it's, a, it's a huge service to the community, the work, uh, the work that he's done to, to put that together.
0: So awesome. those, those
1: are two things I'd recommend.
0: Awesome. And, uh, Mark, do we send them to your LinkedIn if they want to connect with you or to your, your medium blog? Where's the, where's the best place to connect with you?
1: Yeah, LinkedIn. LinkedIn is probably the best place to connect.
0: Awesome. So we'll, I'll make sure all those links are in the show notes. And with that folks, I think we've done a show, so we'll talk to you soon.
2: Thanks so much, Ben. It's fantastic. Thanks. Thank you. Mm
0: -hmm. Bye.